0: Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today we speak with Portfolio Manager Matt Siddle as he discusses the impacts of rising interest rates on European consumers, opportunities for long-term investing in staples, and his investing philosophy. Within the European labour environment, Matt explains to host Brian Borsakowski, historically low unemployment levels continue to enable wage inflation. In turn, unions continue to push for wage hikes of between 10 and 15% to match rising costs. The cost of food has risen by almost 40%. And while the removal of the fear factor around gas shortages has caused European markets to rally, the price of petrol and diesel have continued to double, even quadruple. The impacts of American regional bank failures and the Credit Suisse banking crisis on European markets has been limited, Matt explains, because of decreased exposure to commercial real estate. Matt also explains that consumer staples remain a significant avenue of opportunity for investors due to their strong pricing power and high returns. When it comes to sourcing ideas, Matt describes the extensive team of analysts and researchers assembled in Europe covering stock recommendations and pitching investment ideas. In addition to the rigorous screening process he deploys to identify the quality of a given business, Matt emphasizes that his goal is to find the profitable opportunities and attractive valuations that are consistent with his investment process. This podcast was recorded on May 18th, 2023. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments.
1: Matt, thanks for joining
2: us today. Great. Thanks very much, Brian. Good to see you again. Good to see you.
1: Why don't we start off with, uh, you know, the issues that are weighing, still weighing on Canadians' minds and how it's affecting Europe. Inflation, interest rates, Um, Where are things at when it comes to interest rates? You know, Bank of Canada has paused uh, a couple of times. Are we seeing that in the ECB? Uh, Let's let's start there.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think inflation's been a a global phenomenon, obviously. Um, I think that Europe maybe last year was um, even more affected to some extent because of uh, the war in Ukraine and the impact that had on energy prices, in particular natural gas, which you know a large part, 40-odd percent of imports used to come from Russia. Obviously, not anymore. We found alternative supplies. Um, but that led to an, an even bigger energy price spike in Europe than, than anywhere else. Um, you know, energy costs went up 10 to 20 times versus what they had been at, at wholesale prices. The, the 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 impact of that inflation takes time because it takes time to feed through the um the uh, supply chain o- on the positive side um energy costs have gone down dramatically Uh, Europe found alternative supplies. It filled its um, natural gas reservoirs. Um, It has higher storage levels than usual. Natural gas prices have fallen by about 90 percent from the peak and are now below where they were before the the invasion started. Um, So that's a good lead indicator that some of the input cost pressure is going to start easing. However, it does take some time to get through the supply chain. So at the moment, inflation is still reasonably high. We're probably looking at about 6% core inflation. It's unlikely that that falls sharply soon. And the ECB was a little bit later starting to raise rates versus the, the Fed and some of the other banks. So it wouldn't surprise me if the ECB does do another rate rise. But I do think we're getting close to the end of that because rates have moved a long way. Core inflation is above target, but has stopped accelerating upwards. And some of the lead indicators on commodity prices, et cetera, are actually falling quite sharply now. So, you know, I I feel that there could be another rate rise to come, but we're, we're definitely getting towards the end of that story.
1: How I wonder how sort of the the that rise in interest rates in in Europe is impacting consumers, impacting the economy. Obviously, you know it's impact it's starting maybe to impact things in Canada, but in Europe you're coming off kind of negative rates and and moving um, higher, which is a bit different than what we're experiencing here, which was ultra low but not negative. Um, what is the impact you're seeing by going positive and 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 then some?
2: Yeah. So look, I mean the the rate situation differs around Europe because you know, obviously rising rates affects mortgages that is the biggest um you know interest bill that any um, you know household is likely to, to have um, And um, that does vary because different European markets have very different mortgage structures. So some markets have, um, you know, straight, um, flexible mortgages. So if rates go up, your monthly bill goes up almost immediately. There are other markets where you buy 20 year fixed mortgages. So if rates go up, You're fixed for the next 20 years. So until you need to take out a new mortgage in 20 years time, you're not paying any more interest. So, um, you know, it does differ very much by country. Um, A lot of Europe has moved towards longer term fixed rates. Um, you know, the UK used to be, for example, virtually wholly a, a flexible rate mortgage market, and now it is virtually wholly a fixed rate mortgage market. Um, and that does mean that the consumer sensitivity is lower than it used to be to rising rates. The bigger impact on consumer has been the rising input costs with utility bills, doubling, trebling, even quadrupling. Um, you know, uh, petrol prices, um, diesel prices going up. Uh, food costs are up twenty percent a year because of the, the higher input costs. So that's been the bigger impact on the consumer in a lot of countries than rising interest rates, because you know, fixed rate mortgages are, are you know much wider spread than they used to be.
1: Um, you mentioned geopolitical issues. Just wonder if we touch on that a bit. Um, You know, it has been a couple of years since uh, Ukraine and Russia uh, war began. Um, We're seeing, you know, Turkish elections, some uncertainty around there. How is all this affecting the markets now today?
2: Is is it having as
1: big of an impact or or things kind of settling down?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know obviously the the Ukrainian war started last february and and initially there was a huge uncertainty and that sort of the market hates uncertainty and that range of outcomes was very very wide uh, I think you know the, the the war very sadly is ongoing and and very sadly is quite a bloody stalemate uh, at the moment um, but that that also reduces the the tail risk. You know, the the uncertainty somewhat. So, um, you know, markets have moved on from the worst fears around the war. I think with the Turkish elections, you know, there was some, you know, markets would have hoped that there would have been a change in in president. Uh, you know, based on the first round, that looks less likely. But so, again, maybe it's much more status quo. So, I think generally the markets are less worried about it than they were sort of six, nine months ago because the range of outcomes has narrowed. Europe's proven that it can find alternative gas supplies. It's filled its um, uh, storage levels up. So that's not to say that something else can't happen that, that could cause an issue. You know, you can't rule that out. But, but the situation's definitely better than six to 12 months ago. And, and that is reflected in, in how the market's behaving.
1: Are there any other issues in Europe that uh, you see bubbling under the surface, or anything else that people should be aware about when they're thinking about investing in in the region?
2: Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think Europe last last winter looked very bad. I, I think you know it was a very tough six months to uh, to get through because you had rising rates at the same time as rising, you know, essential costs for food and uh, heating. Um you know but there was a lot of pressure on on the consumer and the the economy all at once on top of the huge uncertainty with with the war you know the the uncertainties are are diminishing um rates are still going up, so that that hasn't changed but, as I said, the natural gas prices are down ninety odd percent and and while that doesn't help the consumer this year because utilities have already bought all the gas for, for this year. As they start to refill their um, inventories and refill storage through the summer, they'll be doing it at much cheaper prices this year than they were last year. So, you know, next year's utility bills are are unlikely to be a, a big step up in, in some, con, you know, there's the potential that it could be, uh, it could even be down in, in countries like the UK. So, you know, the pressure on the consumer is clearly getting better and wage increases you know maybe we we could talk about the, the labor environment but unemployment is very low uh, unemployment um is is uh, you know in historically low levels And that is enabling wage inflation. You know, the unions are pushing for for, uh, wage hikes to match inflation. You know, they're asking for, you know, with with headline inflation between 10 and 15 percent, depending on your country, you know, they're asking for 10 or 15 percent wage increases. And because companies are actually really quite profitable at the moment, they could afford to pay higher wage increases and, and still earn good, good margins so yeah the unions aren't getting their 10 to 15% but wages are definitely growing faster than the two or three percent they used to, particularly in countries like the UK or, or Germany where labor mar- or the Netherlands where labour markets are particularly tight. So the consumers getting faster wage growth at a time when their input costs are starting to come down and, and you know having gone through a very tough winter, definitely the environment looking forward is slightly better than it was uh, six to twelve months ago.
1: Um so you know taking all this into account uh let's talk maybe broadly about just the 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 outlook for Europe for European markets um and then we'll can dig into some sectors and more specific areas but um how does kind of the European market look for investors today
2: Yeah so uh, i mean the market has rallied um because of that uh that the, the the removal of that fear factor around you know gas shortages and and the war um, but it still remains significantly cheaper than the uh, the US market um, and uh, and and other developed markets. So you know there's still uh, some very attractive valuations out there. Um, the market is quite bifurcated at the moment. There's a group of um, stocks you know, uh, big growth stocks. It's it's not a million miles different to the U.S., right? There's a group of big growth stocks which have performed very well for a decade. Um, In Europe, they even kept... performing well last year, you know, the valuation gaps in the U.S. narrowed quite significantly last year, and that just didn't happen in, in Europe. You know, the, some of the, the big growth stocks actually kept out performing last year, and, and you didn't see quite the value rotation that you did in, in the U.S. So, you know, what you've got is a cheap market with some stocks which are, um, you know, earning, at the, you know, we. Business is strong. They're earning at the top of the cyclical range, even peak margins they've they've ever delivered. And and some stocks do look quite expensive, particularly some of those perceived growth stocks. But equally, there's plenty of businesses which are are on depressed valuations, particularly compared to, to peers, you know. You know, but financials is one area maybe we we can touch on it later. But you know financials and consumer stocks are are on unusually cheap multiples, and and despite in the case of consumers, some of the the headwinds getting better.
1: Um yeah let's let's talk about banks. I mean obviously a big uh big hot topic as well with the regional banking crisis in the U S. But also in Europe Credit Suisse um and what happened there. So how has the impact of US and, and Credit Suisse um impacted banking overall?
2: Yeah, so you know um the 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 problems at the regional banks and at Credit Suisse basically happened to banks that had um non-sticky deposits that were not insured and where investors feared losses and investors feared losses either because the business model had been unprofitable for years like Credit Suisse or because um yeah rates have gone up and if deposits started to flow out then you'd have to sell bonds and and you'd have to sell bonds at a loss because rates have gone up and and maybe also you know in some of the regional banks you know they've got pretty high commercial real estate exposure in their loan books and and people are worried about commercial real estate exposure so so that's been the 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 problem really that the banks would have got non sticky deposits that aren't insured and where people are fearing losses um, the, the positive thing in Europe is that that doesn't actually apply to very many banks. Um, Credit Suisse is fairly unique in terms of the limited amount of deposits which were insured because the vast majority of its depositors are ultra high net worth or were ultra high net worth individuals um, and, uh, and, you know, they were way over the deposit caps. most banks in europe instead of 10 percent of deposits being insured which is kind of the case at credit suisse and some of the regionals you know it's 50 60 70 percent of deposits are insured and um you know the 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 european bank sector has had a lot of regulation thrown at it over the last five or ten years and and that has limited the roe that the sector has made but the regulators stopped for banks buying, taking that interest rate risk, which, which is what has undone, you know, SVB, you know, Silicon Valley Bank and some of the others. You weren't you just weren't allowed to do that under European regulations. Right. You, you were not allowed to take that interest rate mismatch risk. Now, that meant when rates were low, um, you couldn't play the lovely carry trade by buying 10-year paper which had a higher yield and then just earning the higher yield for five or 10 years. But it did mean that when rates went up, you didn't own the 10-year paper and didn't have that duration mismatch and didn't face big losses. So, you know, but the European sector's actually gone through Q1 in a pretty strong way. Results and, and interest income has been above expectations, provisions generally below expectations, earnings have been revised upwards. Um, deposits, the very, very few cases where deposits have seen a material outflow. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, generally, um, the sector is in a much better position than it was five or 10 years ago and better than the U.S. regional banks have been. However, interestingly, you know, quite a few of these banks are trading on a half times book or less than half times book on, you know, some of them even four or five times earnings. Despite the fact they're generating capital, doing dividends, even doing share buybacks because we have excess capital. So there are some opportunities in there. Obviously they're cyclical businesses, but but definitely there are some opportunities in there.
1: So just just in in uh, in the opportunities in the banking sector. So if they've are, you know, valuations are low. What what's I guess what is the opportunity? How are they going to get higher? How are people gonna, you know, get a return off those banks? What's kind of the long-term opportunity?
2: Yeah, look. Uh, I mean, let's be realistic. Banks are cyclical businesses which are exposed to macro. And when people fear a recession, they don't immediately think, let's go and invest in a bank. OK, that's not top of your mind. OK. However, if the bank is able to continue generating capital, to continue generating significant profits and has excess capital, that it can return to shareholders. Then if you're trading on four or five times earnings and you can use that money to return to shareholders, you know, you can reduce your share count by 10, 15% on top of paying a high single digit dividend yield. And, um, and, and the stock just gets cheaper. So next year it's on even lower because the same profits are divided by 10 or 15% less shares. So, you know, but the way that you earn a return is is when people become more optimistic about the macro scenario. These stocks do not trade on four or five times earnings. They tend to trade, even European banks tend to trade on eight or ten. You know, U.S. banks, Canadian banks have tended over the last decade to t- trade between 10 and 13. So, you know, you've you've got an awful lot of upside when people become more optimistic about the macro. And in the meantime, you're getting a high dividend yield and they're doing share buybacks, which means that even if, prof- even if your absolute dollar profit doesn't grow, your profit per share can do.
1: What other sectors uh, are you finding opportunities? I know luxury is a big sector in Europe. Um, how does that look? And are there any other opportunities besides banking that you're looking at today?
2: Yeah, so generally, I, I quite like consumer sectors. Um, for the reasons that we've, we've discussed, generally people got very bearish and uh, the valuations fell to, to unusually low levels. And with rising wages and with falling commodity prices, um, it is positive for real wage growth in Europe, which, which was a, you know, quite negative levels last year, but, but is, is improving this year and, and likely to, to be stronger next year. However, luxury is a, 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 an exception to that comment, because people never got very bearish about luxury. They saw them as uh, structural growth stocks, uh, so um, those stocks never really derated. Um, they, they trade, you know, some of those stocks actually trade on 50 or 60 times earnings, uh, even though margins are at peak levels. Um, and um so so I, I i don't actually own any luxury stocks we we sold out of those it, the sort of um 2020 uh, time period um and it is more your um your your other consumer you know your your fashion your sporting goods um you know some of these stocks are on you know quite big discounts to us peers to to historic valuations um and uh, and and offer you know pretty good upside and and interestingly you know have very strong balance sheets so you know even if the the view that the consumer is improving to, you know if something changes and it gets worse again you know they 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 often have net cash balance sheets, so you know can cope with a a slowdown for a year and you know it'll be a, a timing issue rather than a big problem
1: um You know, Canadian investors uh, are watching this, advisors. What is the sort of the long-term case to be made for investing in Europe? Why should a Canadian advisor consider Europe for a client portfolio? You know, not just now, but maybe over the next five years.
2: We've discussed how much cheaper Europe is than the U.S. and other developed markets. And, you know, valuation, if you believe in valuation as an investment framework, then, you know, Europe is one of the richest source of good value ideas in the world. You're also not purely reliant on Europe. The European stock market, only half the profits actually come from Europe. Roughly a quarter come from the US, North America, and roughly a quarter come from emerging markets. So there's a lot of very strong global businesses and they trade on attractive valuations, or some of them trade on attractive valuations. I mean, we've talked about financials. We've talked about consumer discretionary. You know, Consumer staples is another area where, you know, you've got some businesses which are global leaders with valuations, which are cheap versus long term, you know, 10 year normal levels, cheap versus U.S. peers. And where you don't not taking that macro risk, you know, uh, some of the other sectors I've talked about. Yes, you are having to take some macro risk. and, And those are the cyclical sectors that I find more attractive. But within the more defensive parts of the market, I think you've got some great ideas in consumer staples where valuations are low. Margins actually are are below the potential level because input costs, commodity prices went up last year. That that pressured margins because it takes longer to pass pricing through. Prices are being passed through now. Input costs are actually coming down. So you you potentially got a double margin benefit as it recovers um, later this year, next year on valuations which are below normal levels. So, you know, you've got some really interesting opportunities there, I think, as well.
1: We always talk about Europe as like one big giant region, um, but as you mentioned before, there are lots of different countries within Europe that have their own characteristics. Are there different spots or countries in Europe that look more attractive than others? How do you kind of approach this from uh, more of a geographic diversity within within
2: Europe? Yeah, so generally, um, it is not easy to play um, individual countries uh, outside of the UK um, or outside of uh, financials. So so pretty much the only sector where you've got a lot of um, domestic businesses would be in uh, and ways to play the domestic economy would be financials. The UK is the only stock market that's really big enough, but it's also got consumer stocks, retail. You know, you, you've got a wider range of ways of playing the, the, the domestic economy. Um so if we focus on those sectors, um, you know, I think the, the, the best way of, of playing this is, you know, as I said earlier, some of the countries interest rates move immediately. Yeah. So you know, w- when rates go up, they immediately increase their mortgage rates, and and customers immediately pay more on their mortgages. And they, you know, if they don't have to raise their deposit rate, they immediately see a benefit to their profitability. And that would be countries like Spain, Italy, and the Nordics up in Scandinavia. Um, some of the other countries like the UK, Benelux, um, so Belgium, Netherlands, and Luxembourg, and uh, fr- France. Um, those are more five-year rate markets. And that what that means is that for financials in those countries, um, they, they it reprices over five years. So when rates went up last year it only helped twenty percent of the book. And now another 20 percent of the book is going to reprice this year and then another 20 percent of the book reprices next year. And what that means is that the margin benefit that some of the companies, some of the banks in southern Europe and and the Nordic saw immediately is being spread over five years for UK banks and French banks. And and given that rates, they may come down, but they're unlikely to go back to negative. And it means that you've got a very visible tailwind of improving net interest margins for banks in, in some of those core geographies. Um, and, and that is attractive, particularly because you're not actually having to pay higher PE multiples for those banks. You know, the market's very focused on short term earnings upgrades at the moment, rather than the, the sort of three to five year outlook for earnings. Um, so that's one opportunity We're overweight UK banks, in particular UK financials, as a result, you know, they're some of the cheapest banks. They've got some of the strongest balance sheets with the best liquidity situation uh, and have this tailwind of, of sort of five years of raising uh, rate benefit. Um, We're also overweight in some of the UK consumer stuff because, you know, the UK took more of a hit on commodity prices and then utility costs up front. And it means that they've got more benefit as things start to unwind. And some of those stocks are also unusually cheap because they took more of a hit last year. So so those are some of the areas that we're we're playing in. Generally, the UK is an overweight, but there are other core European countries that also we find attractive.
1: So just more broadly, I'm curious on your investment philosophy. What do you look for in a good stock to add to your portfolio?
2: Yeah, so my, my approach is, is basically a um, uh, a composite approach. So I'm not simply looking for the best business. So I'm not simply looking for the highest quality or fast grow, fastest growing business. I'm not simply looking for the cheapest business on, on the lowest absolute multiple. What I'm really looking for are good quality businesses, you know, at least average to better than average quality businesses, you know, good businesses that aren't competitively disadvantaged, that aren't in a structurally challenged sector, where the valuations are unusually attractive. And, and that's kind of why we find quite a lot of opportunity in consumer staples at the moment, because there's quite a lot of good businesses that have a competitive advantage, that have strong pricing power, that have you know, high returns and strong cash generation. But the valuations on some of these stocks are unusually cheap. Um, so, so we find plenty of opportunities there. Ditto, as I said, in some of the consumer discretionary sectors, unusually cheap valuations for some good businesses. The banks, it's much more difficult to argue that they're good businesses, but the valuations are exceptionally cheap on some of those. And, you know, we, we don't say we'll never invest in a lower quality business. What we say is the valuation has to be unusually cheap and you have to be confident that the balance sheet hasn 't got a hole in it because you don't want your valuation case to be destroyed by a capital problem you know i 'm not going to go chasing at you know, I did not go chasing after a Spanish or Italian bank in the eurozone crisis. My investment approach would not be chasing after regional banks with deposit outflows, but we can find much better um, more solid capital and liquidity positions with you know stocks on four or five times earnings returning capital back to shareholders and those do look interesting to me.
1: Great. We just have a minute left and I'm just wondering about sort of how you generate ideas. Um, tell me a bit about the Fidelity team you work with and, and how you kind of come together to, to, to find those ideas that you're talking about.
2: Yeah, so we've got a team of about 35 analysts in Europe covering European stocks. There's also US research team, emerging markets research team that all sort of collaborates with each other. So, you know, the European uh, analysts always get the uh, the read across, the feedback from competitors in the US or what's going on locally in China. You know, in terms, you know, I said a quarter of the profits are emerging market. Knowing what's happening is China is is quite important. And having people on the ground in Shanghai and and in Hong Kong is is valuable. so, you know, we, we've got a very strong research team and they surface ideas, uh, you know, recommend stocks, et cetera. I, I also have a series of screens. That helped me to identify what is the quality of this business what is the valuation of this business and and does that idea fit in that approach that i'm i'm saying so you know some of the ideas they're great ideas but let's be honest they're high growth high multiple growth ideas and that doesn't necessarily fit my approach so what i'm looking for is you know that overlap between the idea generation from the analyst team that that comes up with winners within their sectors where they see the best opportunities, combined with the discipline of screening for what actually fits my investment process, good businesses on attractive valuations.
1: Great. Matt, uh, I will leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Great. Thank you, Brian.
0: Thank you for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity Mutual Funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you. See you next time.